great time for you all. Okay? Are you ready? Raise your hands if you like country music. Oh, wow. Enjoy. Raise your hand if you're not really a fan of country music. Anybody? Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Raise your, all right, it's October, in the spirit of October. Raise your hand if you like candy corn. Mm. I see those hands. <laughs> all right. Raise your hand if you are not a big fan of candy corn. Wow. Very polarizing. Okay. <laughs> this is what's called a hobby horse. Raise your hand if you like Hallmark Christmas movies. <laughs> wow. Okay, I see a couple brothers raising their hand. Okay, what? <laughs> All right. Uh, raise your hand if you could do without Hallmark Christmas movies. Oh. <laughs> All right, I will be fair. I will be fair with this. Raise your hand if you enjoy talking about sports. Okay, okay. Raise your hand if you would rather discuss the elements that contribute to Drying than talking. <laughs> all right, great. Now look at all these differences. And yet, you're not at each other's throats. Praise God. Well, friends, there are endless preferences and opinions that divide us. They force us to pick a side very often. And at times, we defend our side with ferocious passion even sometimes with sharp, biting criticism. But in the final analysis, that is the final analysis, when you and me stand before God, there is only one division, one difference that matters. Have you rejected Jesus or have you received Jesus? That is the one division. began our journey in the Gospel of John last week, where we looked at the first five verses. And there, John introduces us to his main subject of his book, Jesus Christ. And he opens his book with a bag. Now, another quick survey. Who here has ever seen a newspaper? Please, they still make those? Okay. You know how newspapers used to make the headlines super huge, like take up almost a whole page when something major John starts his book in a similar way. It's not something major that has happened. It's someone major has happened. This is what his book contains. This someone is the Word, he calls him. The Word, because the Word is how God creates, how God reveals himself, how God saves his people. And this Word, John says, is the eternal Word, who has always existed. This word, John says, is equal to God the Father, yet he is distinct from God the Father. This word, John's main subject of his book, he says, is the life and light of the world. And this person, the word, is none other than Jesus Christ. That's the first five verses, and now we move into verses 6 to 13. With his subject in view, John puts his subject on trial. He takes, the, he takes us to the courtroom, and the first witness he calls to the stand is John the Baptist. 
John the Apostle builds his case for who Jesus is throughout his entire book. But he begins here. John the Baptist is the first witness who confirms the truth about who Jesus is, about what verses 1 to 5 say. But the trial doesn't end with John the Baptist. The Apostle John moves us from his subject, Jesus, to the witness, John the Baptist, to the jury. It's everybody else, the whole world. And he sees that some responded with a favorable verdict, but most responded by rejecting the defendant or the subject, Jesus. That's the big movement of verses 6 to 13. Hopefully you have your Bibles open. Follow along as I read from page 887, 886 in the church Bible, Bible for There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of Why is this section here? Why did God include this in the Bible? What does God want to accomplish through this section? That's what we try to answer the main idea each week. One way we can put it is like this. Jesus is the light that breaks into our dark world. But this is good news only for those who believe in him. Jesus is the light that breaks into our dark world, but this is good news only for those who believe in him. So three sections for our time. The light verified, the light rejected, and the light received. First, the light verified, we're looking at verses 6 to 8. So like we said, we're in the courtroom. John the Apostle, attorney at law, calls John the Baptist to stand. And we might picture an attorney approach the bench and begin to examine his witness. And John the Apostle starts off by saying, you know, hey, hey, John, your name's John, right, John? That's a fine name. How about I say your name repeatedly so that I confuse the jury as to whether I'm talking about you or me? <laughs> Kidding? He does not say that. In fact, the Apostle John never mentions himself by name in this book. He refers to himself only in the third person or with a unique, unique title as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so in examining this witness, John the Apostle targets John the Baptist's identity. And we can spot John the Baptist's identity throughout verses 6 to 8. The Apostle John builds a profile sketch. Notice different things about John the Baptist's identity. One detail that stands out in verse 6. The Apostle John tells us that John the Baptist is a man. Now that might be... You might gloss over that because, of course, what else would he be? But compare this with the previous paragraph, and it's quite different. In verse 1, we're told that the Word is God, but John is a man. 
And to drive this point home again, the Apostle John says that John the Baptist is not the light in verse 8. John, the Apostle John clarifies this because there were some, when he was writing, like Apollos or people in the city of Ephesus, as described in Acts 19. The, those people there, they had only heard of John the Baptist, but they had never heard of Jesus. So the Apostle John means to clarify John the Baptist's identity, not to criticize his identity. The one thing he's trying to accomplish. Now, what other details of John the Baptist's identity do we see? We say he's just a man, but he is a man sent from God. See that too in verse 6. He's a man sent from God. God sent John the Baptist to be a witness. In fact, that word comes up three times. And this is a courtroom term. Hence why we're picturing the courtroom together. Now, what is John the Baptist witnessing? Better question, more precise, who is John the Baptist witnessing? Well, it says, the light. The Apostle John has already used this title already in his book so far. You look back at verse 5. The light overcame the darkness. That's how we should think of the light. The main work that the light has done is overcome the darkness. And we can think of a lot of examples of how, of how Jesus did this. But the main example, the principal way that Jesus, the light, overcame the darkness was when he died and he rose again. Defeating sin, death, and the devil. Overcoming the darkness. So, who is John the Baptist? What is his identity? God didn't send John the Baptist to be the light. He sent him to bear witness to the light. And as we continue to read the Gospel of John, we're going to see that John the Baptist himself recognizes this. He recognizes he is not the main attraction. He came to announce the main attraction. He's not the prize fighter like Tyson or Ali. He's the PA announcer who announces the prize fighter's entrance into the arena. So, John the Apostle, attorney at law, he runs through the basics with his witness, John the Baptist. He has him state his name for the record. He knows his line of work. But we might hear the Apostle John saying something else. He says, John the Baptist, okay, this is helpful. But tell us why you do what you do. We've established your identity, but what's your purpose? What do you hope to achieve from your work as a witness to the lights. Well, perhaps the most important detail of John the Baptist's identity is John the Baptist's goal. It comes in the middle of verse 7. What is his goal in being a witness to the light? See that phrase? His goal is so that all might believe through him. Now, we might be able to put ourselves in John the Baptist's shoes, or at least try. If we were John the Baptist, we might be tempted to say, you know, the Apostle John... I was talking about Jesus before anybody else was. I was talking about Jesus before it was cool. <coughs> now, while everyone may not believe, the way anyone has heard about Jesus, think about it, is ultimately from John the Baptist. Because he's the first guy who told people about Jesus. And so John the Baptist isn't interested in his own notoriety or stature. What's his goal? He's interested in eliciting a response. He desires people, quite simply, to believe in Jesus, the long-awaited king, the one who will usher in God's kingdom 
by dying for sinners so that they could enter God's kingdom. So the Apostle John is more than a good attorney. By putting John the Baptist on the stand, he's also being a good student of the Bible. Because John the Apostle knows biblical procedures set up in the Torah. He knows that to back up a claim, you need two or three witnesses. And so John the Baptist is John the Apostle's first witness. And But there will be other witnesses throughout his book. Later on, the Father will witness to who Jesus is. The Spirit will witness to who Jesus is. Jesus' own works will witness to who Jesus is. A Samaritan woman at a well will witness to who Jesus is. A man born blind will witness to who Jesus really is. The Apostle John has many ways to verify his claim of who Jesus is, the Son of God. I bring this up because if we just left it here, and we just saw John the Baptist as the only witness for Jesus, then you might walk away from his description feeling a little discouraged. Because you know something about John the Baptist's story. You know something about who he is. John the Baptist is a really intense guy. He's a bold order. He gets in people's face. You and I might not be comfortable with that. And so if John the Baptist is the standard for who can be a witness to Jesus, well then, quite frankly, you and I don't meet that standard, do we? Because John the Baptist seems like he sets a pretty high bar, almost an unattainable bar. And so we should clarify. Who is a witness for Jesus? Who does that include? It is anyone who has received Jesus. Anyone who knows Jesus. Anyone who has experienced Jesus. My Christian brother and sister, have you received Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you experienced Jesus? Well, then I hate to break it to you, but you are a witness of Jesus. Because you know what I didn't ask you? I didn't ask you, have you learned enough? Are you committed enough? Are you skilled enough in being a witness? Because those aren't the first criteria, are they? They're not. Brothers and sisters, it's not a matter of whether or not we are witnesses of Jesus. We are already. It's a matter of whether or not we are good witnesses for Jesus. Right? And so John the Baptist provides us a model to follow. J.C. Ryle, an 18th century preacher from England, talked about how John the Baptist provides us a model of the true nature of Christian ministry. He says, Christian ministers are not priests. They are not mediators between God and man. They are not agents into whose hands men may commit their souls. They are witnesses. They are intended to bear testimony to God's truth, and especially to the great truth that Christ is the only Savior and light of the world. Christian brother and sister, we are witnesses. Just like John the Baptist. So the Apostle John wants to verify his claims of Jesus. We should desire the same thing. We verify the claims of who Jesus is and what he has done by how we live and by what we say. Because we understand that the Bible says that faith in Jesus comes from hearing about Jesus. 
Somebody did it for us, we pay it forward and do it for somebody else. But I wonder, just on the last point of, John, of the light verified, of John the Baptist being an effective witness, I wonder if today if, if you have plenty of experiences of bad witnesses for Jesus. People who tout the name of Jesus, but man, live awful lives or have done really bad things. Can we say we've all had experiences of that? How do we think about that? It made me think of Peter and denying Jesus three times. Do you guys remember that story? Yeah, pretty famous story, right? But one of the people that Peter lied to was a little girl. Do you remember that? I just, maybe some warranted imagination. I wonder what happened to that girl. I wonder what happened to that girl that Peter lied to. What if Peter was that girl's only exposure to Jesus? What if that was the case? That'd be tragic, wouldn't it? But just because Peter represented Jesus poorly doesn't mean that Jesus still isn't true. Ultimately, that girl would have to deal with the quality of the subject not the quality of the witness. But maybe still, maybe this little girl stuck around Jerusalem. And perhaps this little girl was in the crowd around the temple a couple of months later. And if she was there, then she would have heard a familiar voice. Would have been Peter's voice. The last time she heard Peter's voice, he was denying Jesus takes cowards and hypocrites like Peter and saves and transforms them. That's who Jesus is. So, the Apostle John attempts to verify his big claims for Jesus through one of the star witnesses for Jesus. And how does the jury rule? Well, it's not great at first. The second point, the light rejected. The Apostle John reminds us of who is on trial in verse 9. He tells us about his subject again. He says he is the true light, which gives light to every man. Jesus is the true light in a couple of ways. He is the true light as opposed to false lights. And it's just a human condition, each one of us. We just search for false lights. You and I, we devise schemes to establish our independence from God, to prove ourselves, to save ourselves. Each one of these schemes is false light. We have a couple of sisters who volunteer at hospice. And families of patients at hospice fear to hear a certain haunting phrase. Doctors are forced to utter it probably very often at hospice. It goes something like this. All we can do now All we can do is make them comfortable. This might as well be the model of anything you give your life to besides Jesus. Maybe it's a good thing, but all it can do is make you comfortable. It cannot save you. Jesus is the true light as opposed to false light. 
true light because he is the ultimate light. All the beams of light in the Old Testament point forward to Jesus. John's going to give a ton of examples in his book. He's going to say when God's people faced the curse of death of the firstborn when they were in Egypt, the blood of a lamb was shed in their place. He says Jesus is the lamb of God who is shed for the sins of his people. When Israel was starving in the wilderness, God gave them bread from heaven. John's going to say Jesus is the bread from heaven. When God's people were plagued with diseases in the wilderness, they looked up into a bronze serpent, which was God's provision for healing. A really weird story. But they were healed. But Jesus, John says, is the ultimate provision who is lifted up and we look to him and are healed from our sin. He is the true, the ultimate light. So John reminds us again of who is on trial. It is Jesus. He is the true light. He is the true light which gives light to every man. Now this phrase can be confusing. We have to look at the context, right? Because literally the next verse would tell us what this does not mean. Jesus giving light to all people can't mean that all people are in the end just fine. Jesus giving light to all people can't mean that everybody will eventually receive Jesus. And the next verse just straight up repeats that. But it might be helpful to notice that the light doesn't shine in everyone. The light shines on everyone. So the question from that is how people will respond. And maybe a helpful way to think about this, of Jesus being the light that shines on everyone, is to think like the sun. The S-U-N. Not S-O-N. It's not original to me. The, the sun, it shines for everyone. There is one sun. It doesn't, it, no matter who you are, doesn't matter the color of skin you have, doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter where you're from, there, there's just one sun that gives light to everyone. And just like there is one light for sinners, but like we're going to see in chapter 3, even though the sun shines, you can find a way to stay in the dark. You can go to your cave. You can cover your eyes. You can close the curtains. But the sun still shines. Jesus is the true light which gives light, which shines light on every man. So this light, John says, came into the world, and the world, how did they rule? What was their verdict? They rejected him. What do you read verses 11 and 12? What's John trying to emphasize here? What's John trying to emphasize in these verses? Maybe we can put it like this. He's trying to say the people who should have received Jesus are the people who rejected Jesus. The people who should have received him rejected him. So John says it's not like these people <coughs> didn't have a chance to get to know Jesus. Jesus came into the world and he stayed there continually. See, Jesus' time in the world wasn't like your attitude toward your co-worker's five-year-old uh, five son's birthday party. Right? What do you do at a birthday party like that? You say, I'll go and I'll make an appearance. I'll keep a low profile. I'll maybe stay until there's cake and then I'll sneak out. Not so with Jesus. Jesus showed up. He stayed and he stayed through the worst of it. And every chance to know It's not like these people didn't have a creator. Amazingly enough, Jesus came to the people who he made. And all of us have that intuitive sense that we were made, that we have a creator. The book of Ecclesiastes says that each one of us has eternity stamped on our hearts. 
Romans 1 very famously says that what's to be known about God that he's out there is clearly grasped by us. We, we sense it. We just suppress it. And so, if Jesus made the world, then Jesus owns the world. And still, people rejected him. And further, John says it's not like Jesus came to a place where he couldn't expect to be known. Jesus didn't show up in India. Jesus didn't show up in Greenland. Jesus didn't show up in Chile. Jesus came to Israel. These people were expecting him. Have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Have you heard of that show? And the whole premise is like for CEOs of big companies to see what it's like for their employees, like to see what their common problems are, their common experiences are. It's a pretty cool show. <coughs> and the show works not just because CEOs normally wear a disguise, but the show works normally because people have no clue what the big boss looks like. <laughs> it's not the case here. The people who longed for the Messiah, who studied him, rejected the Messiah when he actually came. Now we look at the people who rejected Jesus in verses 10 and 11. And you know, you and I might be tempted to hold our heads up high. Do as we do when we often read scripture. We say, I would never have done that. If I was in that situation, I would have acted completely differently. I don't know. <coughs> I think instead this should sober us. In fact, this, this is scary here. The people who rejected Jesus. Because they shouldn't receive him. I think from this, you know what this tells us? This tells us that you can go to church. You can go to church your whole life. You can go to a good church. You can go to a good church that preaches the gospel. A good church that believes the truth about who Jesus is. You can study Jesus. You can hear sermons about Jesus. You can do all that and still have not truly received Jesus. And the scary thing is, you can do all that just for show. Just as an act, a performance, to make yourself feel less guilty because you still live how you want to live. That is scary. You may know the famous indictment from Isaiah 29, 13. This people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. My friends, how many people will stand before Jesus one day who should have recognized him, but didn't? How many people will stand before Jesus one day who seemed like they received Jesus, but in fact didn't? So if you're hearing this and you sense that you act like you've received Jesus, but the way you live and the desires of your heart show that you reject him for yourself, well, my friend, consider it his mercy that you're hearing this right now. May his patience with you lead you to repent. Because, friend, this is the day. This is the day. No more acts. No more performance. No more going through the motions. It's time to know the real Jesus. And who is the real Jesus? Well, it's the one John describes here. Ask this question as we're looking at these verses. 
by beginning with the, all the people who rejected Jesus. It's like, here's this guy I want you to believe in. Here's how unsuccessful he was. Why do that? Well, I think it's John saying, this is the people Jesus came to. It's John saying, Jesus didn't wait to come before, uh, until people received him. Jesus came while people still rejected him. That's the people Jesus came to. What does Romans 5, 8 say? In this, God demonstrates his love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't wait and say, you know, maybe one day when they get their act together, then I'm going to show up. No, while we were yet sinners, while we rejected him, Jesus still came. That is who Jesus is. So my friend, if you've been found out as a, as a phony, turn to Jesus, and he will meet you there. That's what he came to say. And he will not cast you out. So not all of the jury verdicts uh, to say that they reject Jesus. Some say that they receive him. There is a remnant that receives the light, verses 12 to 13. And like an effective attorney, the Apostle John is a very analytical thinker. He analyzes and dissects the reception of the word, Jesus. First, he describes the action. And notice how he describes it. Notice the verbs. To all who receive. To all who believe. This is most significant for the actions that don't appear. It says receive and believe. John doesn't say to all those who have proved themselves worthy. John doesn't say to all those whose good deeds outweigh their bad ones. John doesn't say to all those who have added Jesus on top of their own goodness like sprinkles on a Sunday. You know, for a long time, Christians have prayed like this, or, or even like this. Am I, am I holding anything here? It's empty hands. Receive. It's a humble posture. It communicates to the Lord, I have nothing to offer you. It communicates to the Lord, you must save me, or I die. All we do Dissect further. Look at the object of our faith. So we see the action to believe, to receive. The object of our faith is a person, the person we receive. John says, to all who receive him, who believe in his name. Now, to believe in the name of somebody is to believe more than just a label. Name for John represents the character of the person, even the person himself. And again, what's most significant is that this is all that's there. There is no and after the phrase, to all who receive him. There is no and after the phrase, to all who believe in his name. John doesn't say, to all those who receive him, and do this. No. As one pastor says, if you say, I have to add something to Christ for salvation, you diminish your understanding for the salvation Christ achieved. If you add something to Jesus, you're saying that Jesus didn't do enough. And so, yes, we've got to say there is evidence of what true faith is. But friends, do not confuse 
the evidence of our faith with the object of our faith. It's a very important distinction. So they ask him, what do we do? We receive. Receive whom? The object is Christ. And what is the results? We keep going. It says, he gave us the right to become children of God. He gave us the right to become children of God. That's the result. There's so much we can say. It corrects our misunderstanding about who the children of God are, doesn't it? We say, of course, everybody is made in the image of God. God created everyone. So everybody has dignity, worth, and value because they have the image of God stamped on them. But who belongs to God's family? It's those who believe in God's Son. God sent his son to make his family bigger. That is the heart of our father. So, if, if you believe in Jesus, believer in Jesus, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. I want us to take that for granted. I want us to press into it. I want us to rest and I want us to enjoy it. You are a child of God. This landed on me as I read Zephaniah. 17. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Jesus is the one who has brought us into the Father's family. Maybe it lands on me like this, and one way I could think about it. A five-year-old playing T-ball. Who goes to those games? Five-year-old playing t-ball is not entertaining. It might be cute, but its cuteness wears off after just a few minutes. <laughs> and nobody shows up to t-ball games on their own just for the thrill of it. If you do, I warn you, you might get yourself put on some kind of list. So why do people go to t-ball games? makes sense for parents to be there. You don't think it's weird? You don't think about it at all. We just go. You want to see your kid. You don't care how good she is. Just delight to watch her. That affection of a parent, a father. Christian, you are a child of God. God feels that way for you. Jesus has accomplished this identity. He settled it. It's not We've seen the action, we've seen the object, we've seen the result. Verse 13 is the explanation. All right, so why do we believe in Jesus? Why do we ever believe? Back in verses 10 and 11, John makes the opposite point. He says there that the people who should have received Jesus rejected him. Here he's saying the people who should have rejected Jesus received him. And think about it, if Jesus gave us the right to become children of God, then that implies, that means... We didn't have that right on our own. That we were not children of God before Jesus. The rest of the Bible confirms that. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verse 1. We followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, a.k.a. Satan. 1 Peter 2, 9. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have no right or no claim to be children of God apart from God's Son, Jesus. We can't take any credit. 
who we are. We operate like if good things happen to us, then that must mean we've done something right. I think of the cheesy musical, The Sound of Music. It's the song where the two lovebirds meet, Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer. It's how they explain it in one of the songs. They say, for here you are standing there, loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Seems so happy, so innocent. This is how we operate. John explains that our entrance into God's family was not because we did something good. It's because Christ did something good for us. He is the son that we never were. And yet, he was cast out of the family so that we could be brought into it. He was rejected so that we could be received. And so why do we believe this in the first place? John says in verse 13, we believe this not because of blood, not because our, our natural heritage gave us an advantage. We believe this not because of the will of the flesh. It's not something that we achieved ourselves. We believe this not because of the will of man. It's not something that other people achieved for us. We believe in Christ because God worked in us. Because it was the will of God. We can't take any credit from beginning to end. So here's how this lands on us. Maybe some of you think, how are there some of you that you're at an advantage with God because you were raised in the right way? You were raised to respect people, not like these kids now. You were raised to work hard, to do the right thing. And all of a sudden, like, the more pride you take in that, the more you suddenly think, that puts me at an advantage with God. Okay. I'm not saying those are bad things, those are all good things. But can we agree, those things mean nothing apart from Jesus. But maybe you're here today and you feel the opposite. You feel like you're at a disadvantage with God because of something about your past, because of something about your family heritage. Maybe there's just no denying that you were dealt a crummy hand. Very clearly raised in the wrong way, not the right way. But praise God, that does not have to determine whether or not you belong to the family of God. Maybe you've made your life a mess. Praise God that your mess does not have to have the last word. Christ can. Maybe you're a parent concerned for your kid who has no interest in Jesus and you think you blew it. Our parenting does not have to have the last word. We strive to be faithful parents, of course, but we're not the ones who save our kids. God is. And so last time I looked, verse 12 says to all who receive Jesus, all, everybody, those who think they're just fine, you need him. Those who think they're beyond your, his, his reach, you need him. The light has come. Friend, will you receive him? And will you take the stand and testify of him to others who need him just like you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus,
witnesses for Jesus. Like John the Baptist. This is beyond us, Lord. But we are witnesses. Help us to be effective ones. All for your glory.